0: Good morning. We're reading this morning, not in the authorised version, but in the New International Version, Genesis chapter two and reading from verse 15 to 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature... That was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is God's word.
1: Good morning, everybody. Good to, good to be with you, especially if you're visiting with us today for the first time, you're our guest. It's wonderful to have you here among us. Well, over the past few weeks, we've talked about manhood, woman, and children, paying particular attention to what the Scriptures have to say on each of these subjects. Today, in order to bring a sense of completion to these different aspects of personhood, I want to talk about God's plan for marriage, the joining of two lives into one. In recent times, marriage has been a hot topic, both in society and in the church. And whilst there are different views and opinions about how we might define marriage, even within this very church, there might be different views. For the purpose of this morning's talk, I will be referring to marriage between a man and a woman, as defined in the Bible. Timothy Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, writes, The Bible begins with a wedding of Adam and Eve and ends in the book of Revelation with another wedding of Christ and the church. Marriage is God's idea. It is also a human institution, and it reflects the character of the particular human culture which it is embedded but the concept and roots of human marriage are in God's own action and therefore what the Bible says about God's design for marriage is crucial. Right from the beginning of creation it has been God's intention for men and women to join together in marriage as we will see for a number of good reasons. These purposes haven't changed and are just as relevant today as ever. However, we do need to acknowledge that there is an enemy who is set against anything God has established and will seek to pervert it. Sadly, the reality is that we live in a fallen world where sin and Satan ruin and destroy relationships. As a church, we should not only be promoting healthy relationships and strong marriages built on biblical principles, but we need to be creating a safe space for those whose relationships have broken down. What is God's purpose for marriage? Why is marriage important to God? Well, in order to answer these questions, we have to start at the beginning, And in Genesis 1 and 2, we find some helpful information about the first coming together of a man and a woman. Some say that the primary purpose for Christian marriage is, in the words of the writer of Genesis, to be fruitful, to increase in number, subdue the earth and fill it. Clearly, this is one of the reasons why God ordained marriage, for the sake of bearing and raising children. Most people would agree that bearing and raising children is an important aspect of marriage and certainly would envisage their marriage, including children. But this alone can't be the only reason for marriage. There will come a time when you think, that's it, we're done having kids. Uh, Raising children is certainly a long-term project, but those children will eventually grow up and they'll be ready to face the world as adults. Does this now mean that the marriage lacks purpose? And of course, what about those beautiful couples who can't have children? Does this mean that their marriage is incomplete? Certainly, the Bible suggests that one of the reasons for marriage is to raise children in a godly household, but that is not the purpose. Genesis 2 does seem to suggest that one of the reasons for marriage is for close and intimate companionship. When you read Genesis 1 and 2, the words of chapter 2 verse 18 hit abruptly. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Throughout chapter 1, God looks on his work and pronounces that it is good Verse 10, it is good. Verse 12, it is good. Verse 18, and so forth. There is a sense that God's creation is good. And this is the very first Something in his creation is not good. It is not good for the man to be alone. Now think about this. Up until this point, Adam was sinless. He was in a perfect relationship with God, living in a perfect relationship beautiful environment isn't that enough (laughs) not according to god god's evaluation was that the man needed a human companion to enjoy a relationship with and it's interesting how genesis puts this you see before god created eve he put adam through the exercise of naming the animals In verse 19, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. In the process of naming all the animals and no doubt observing them as having counterparts, Adam must have wondered to himself, Where's my mate? Verse 20, This, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. God not only saw this, but he knew it. And in the next verse we read, So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man." In marriage, companionship is important. God did not create a mother or a father for Adam, but a wife. Both the man and a woman must leave their parents in order to cleave to one another. A cord must be cut. This doesn't mean that parents in order to... This doesn't mean to leave parents... um, and abandon that relationship. But it does mean that a person needs enough emotional maturity to break away from dependence upon their parents into marriage. And parents need to raise their children with a view to releasing them. Here God is acknowledging not only our need for fellowship with Him, but also with a life partner. Now this is not to say that every person needs to be married. God has called some to be single. Nor is it to say that marriage will meet all of our needs for companionship. Both married and single people need good friendships around them as well. But it is to say that a reason God designed marriage was to meet the human need for companionship. In addition to having children, and multiplying and meeting a need for companionship. God also intended intimacy for marriage. And so he created sex. Sex wasn't just for procreation, but enjoying intimacy at a deeper level. That is why the writer of Genesis and Jesus and the Apostle Paul will talk about people leaving their parents in order to become one flesh. One flesh means joining intimately emotionally, physically and spiritually. It was designed to be good and yet our world has perverted the nature of sex. God designed sex to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife to deepen the intimacy of their companionship. And so the Bible suggests that some of the reasons for marriage is raising godly children, companionship and intimacy But interestingly, God has a much deeper purpose yet for marriage. Whether a couple have kids or not, eventually they grow up and leave. And people do not always find deep companionship and intimacy in marriage. And sadly, they might look elsewhere to fulfil those needs. So while these reasons ought to bring to life the vitality and uh, life and vitality to a marriage. They alone aren't the main purpose. I'm just going to pause for a moment. Um, just feel a little bit like just kind of going through the motions. Um, but I just want to acknowledge, this is a tough subject to speak on. What I'm talking to you about, many of you know. You've heard about this and read it in the Scriptures. But I think marriage, from a Christian perspective, is really under attack. And, you know, here I am, trying to be faithful to God's Word. And, uh, and Bron and I just had the most horrible day yesterday. <laughs> and uh, for some funny reason, the PowerPoint isn't working this morning. Um, you know, kind of the children are really alive this morning. I, I just sort of feel as though there's really something trying to distract or disrupt what God wants to do. Um, And so I actually just want to stop and pause and pray and just be still for a moment, recognising that we're talking about something that's very sacred to the heart of God and I don't want to just go through the motions and uh, just give another talk on, on marriage and have each of you just nod your heads and go, yep, it's good. No. So we're going to get to the real deep purpose of God's intention for marriage because that's really I think what today is going to be about. Before we do that let's. let's, in fact I'm just going to invite anyone who would like in this moment now just to call on the name of God to invite his Holy Spirit to come among us, um, just to put away kind of doing church going through the motions and to really engage deeply with the word of God that we as a people might have a deep strong conviction uh, about his plans for our lives. Marriage is, is one of those things but it's it fits into a broader picture of what God wants to do through his people in this world. Um, so, if God is prompting you, then I just want to invite us as a fellowship, as a family, just to come now before him and pray. So, I'm just going to have an open time for prayer and then I will close. Let us come before our great God in prayer. We should come and stand with you. Let's pray. Almighty God, we just call on your Holy Spirit to come and fall afresh upon this place and upon your people. Lord, would we submit ourselves to your word? Father, our world will tell us so many things that are so contrary to your word. But as followers of Jesus, we need to submit ourselves to the word of God. We know that your word, Lord, has power and it has authority. And I pray that it might have the power and the authority in our lives today that you desire it to have. So, Father, come and move amongst your people here this morning. We pray for your word to be spoken, not mine. We pray for your Holy Spirit to do your deep work within our hearts to bring about the transformation that you desire to see in each person's life here this morning Lord we just acknowledge that when we open your word we're dealing with a sacred text we're dealing with a text that comes from your very heart to your people Father sometimes it is so easy for us to overlook your word to discount it to become a little bit neutral to it but I pray God that this morning you might have a deepening sense of love amongst your people for your word. Give us a real desire, Lord, to follow you, to be true to godly principles. And, Father, I just pray that as we, as a people, seek to understand and reflect the nature of God in a world that is ever increasingly becoming less and less God-like. Pray, God, that you might fill us with your love, that we might not reflect a God of judgment and criticism and despair, but a God of deep love for all people, a God who created all people, men and women, in his own image, a God who deeply desires relationship with all people, and a God who desires human relationships to reflect something of the Trinitarian nature of yourself, God. Come and be among us now. We thank you that you are among us. May we be attentive to you always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Excellent. So we talked about children. We talked about companionship. And we talked about intimacy. All being purposes... For marriage, but the main purpose of marriage, which is found throughout the pages of Scripture, is primarily about reflecting the nature of God. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians five thirty-two, just after he spoke about the importance of love within a marriage, says, "This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the Church." What Paul is implying is just like a husband and wife will leave their parents, so Jesus left his home in heaven and his bride became the church. And Christ's love for his bride, the church, was sacrificial and purifying. And so our love towards our spouse ought to be sacrificial and purifying as well. It is interesting to read that the word used for one in Genesis two twenty four, where God says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh, is the same Hebrew word used for God himself in Deuteronomy 6, 4, where we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God is one, And God is three. God is unity. God is also diversity. The same can be said of marriage. A marriage couple are to be united as one in their diversity. And here also the nature of God is reflected. In many wedding vows, most likely in the vows that many of us here today made... We repeated these words to each other. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. However, for a marriage to be healthy, surely it has to be so much more than just for better or worse. In sickness, in health. I mean, what if your marriage is just worse than sickness? Is that going to reflect the nature of God? You see, a Christian marriage has to be so much more than upholding a promise not to leave. It ought to include, above all, a covenant to grow, to become the people that God intends us to be. One couple said in their vows, in this marriage, I want to grow as a person. I want to help you grow as a person and I want to see our relationship of love, companionship and support grow deeper, larger and stronger in Jesus. With the help of God, I commit myself to that. Now that is the purpose of a marriage. In sharp contrast to our culture, The Bible teaches that the essence of marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. Therefore, marriage ought to be about helping each other grow into the people God wants us to be. Not what we want, but what God wants. Our, marriage will t- our society will tell us that marriage is all about love and we just have to love each other. What does that actually mean? And what does that actually look like? And whose definition of love is being applied to that statement? Absolutely, marriage is about love, but the biblical understanding of love is so very different to the world's understanding of love. The biblical understanding of love, as demonstrated by Jesus Christ on the cross, is about sacrifice and about service. It's not about self and what I want. And marriage now has become all about what I want, It's all about the need of the individual rather than seeking to meet the need of another individual. Now, this task of actually giving myself to helping my spouse become increasingly more like the person God intends them to be is a hard work. Is it not? (laughs) Marriage is without question one of the tools God uses to help people become more selfless and more Christ-like. Now, I've done a lot of reading this week in order to try and prepare for this morning. And two useful chapters that I read this week shed some light on how we might go about Achieving such a goal, such a high and lofty goal. Imagine if we all saw our marriage, the primary purpose of it being to help our spouse become more Christ-like, more of the person that Jesus created them to be. The first book I made reference to earlier is Tim Keller, The Meaning of Marriage, and he has a very helpful chapter called The Power for Marriage, where he rightly argues that we can only truly love our spouse as God intends if we have the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And he comments that this is exactly why the apostle Paul begins his household instruction on relationships by saying be filled with the spirit. That precedes every relationship that follows. This is so important. And if we think that we can leave today and try to be a better spouse, we've missed the point because it's not about trying harder. It's about being more submitted to God and making more room for His Holy Spirit to fill your life, to guide your actions so that the fruit of the Spirit might develop and you might be able to demonstrate those qualities to the person who is closest to you physically here on earth, your spouse, if you are married. Another useful book is Gary Chapman's covenant marriage, where he builds the case that what makes Christian marriages distinct, or what ought to, I should say, is that they are designed to be covenant relationships, in contrast to contract relationships. Basically meaning, a con- he, he argues that we uh, we exist in a contractual based society, and and a contract meaning that We have an agreement and so long as I hold up my end of the agreement, we're good. Um, But if you break your end of the agreement, then I'm free to break my end of the agreement. And unfortunately, this kind of bleeds into marriages. that We kind of feel as though we've got a contract. You need to give me these things and I need to give you these things. But what Chapman argues, and I think convincingly so, is that the Bible views marriage as being a covenant relationship, reflecting the nature of our covenant God. God is always making covenants with His people. And the thing about a covenant, unlike a contract, is that a covenant is not bound to the actions and the behaviours of the other person in the relationship. It's actually about what, what you give to the other person. And so in God's relationship with his people, it is an unconditional commitment of love and faithfulness. And so the biblical vision of marriage is a covenant marriage where two people covenant together before God that they will love and honour one another regardless of how that other person responds to that love. Now, again, in an ideal world, both parties in a Christian marriage will be operating under that same pretense and understanding. But as I said right at the very beginning, we live in a fallen and broken world. And so God's ideal is so rarely seen or achieved. Certainly, it's never seen or achieved in its fullness... Certainly, divorce is is not the unforgivable sin. And whilst God's intention for marriage is that a man and a woman would remain together for life, loving one another and growing in a Christ-like manner, we live in a fallen and broken world and relationships break down. And I don't believe God's heart is to condemn in that situation believe that God's heart is to love and embrace. Absolutely, we should do everything we can to uphold our vows and to embrace a covenant marriage as Christian people. But Christian people are still broken and affected by sin. And it's actually been really fascinating for me here at this church to enter into relationship with a number of remarried couples and it's taught me a few things about life and about marriage. You know, as a young person, we can so easily set out with very high expectations of how our life and how our marriages are going to pan out. It doesn't always happen that way. And I've also seen the wonder and the beauty of people delighting in each other in a second marriage and that to me also speaks to the heart of a God of second chances. (laughs) When something that God designed doesn't work, it doesn't mean it's over and finished for that person but that God can do a new and a wonderful thing in that person's life and I don't know about you but I find that so heartening. So in a covenant marriage, our concern is for the other person and our concern is to ensure that we, regardless of how our partner responds to us, we are committed to loving unconditionally and showing and reflecting the nature of God to our spouse. In Genesis 2, 18 and 20, we read that God made woman to be a suitable helper for man. How do we interpret this? Over the years there have been many interpretations, some good and some bordering on spiritual abuse. The Hebrew word helper is not demeaning, nor does it suggest a subservient status. In fact, the very same word is used of God's help for those in distress for those who require military assistance, it points to the fact that the husband needs and even depends on his wife's support and help. Ultimately, though, the reality is husbands and wives mutually need to help one another grow into the people God intends us to be. According to author Gary Thomas, we're not asking the right questions when it comes to marriage. What if your relationship isn't as much about you and your spouse as it is about you and God? Instead of asking why we have struggles in the first place, the more important issue is how we deal with them. In his book, Sacred Marriage, Gary Thomas has not written your typical how-to-have-a-happier-relationship book. Rather, he asks, how can we use the challenges, joys, struggles and celebrations of marriage to draw us closer to God? What if God designed marriage to make us both happy and holy? Thomas writes, if happiness is our primary goal, we'll get a divorce as soon as happiness seems to wane. If receiving love is our primary goal, we'll dump our spouse as soon as they seem to be less attentive. But if we marry for the glory of God, to model His love and commitment to our children, and to reveal His witness to the world, then we will experience happiness and holiness. How do we do this? How do we make our marriages more holy? How do we help each other grow as Christians? Well, let me tell you, first of all, what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean dictatorship. Because that's how we've perhaps interpreted the Bible. Or how some have interpreted some of these texts. I've observed some couples where this happens, and as I referenced earlier, this is called spiritual abuse. It does not mean that one partner tries to make the other partner like them. We are unique. And again, it is in our uniqueness that we can reflect the diversity and the unity of God. I want to just tease out a little bit more with this idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit and that being the key to helping us in the pursuit of helping our spouse achieve Christ-likeness. You see, the fruit of the Spirit will help us love our spouses with the strength of God's love. The Holy Spirit will develop within us patience. As long as we will remain a Christian, God will continue to chip away at us and mould us into His person. And it takes a lifetime. That's why God designed marriage to last a lifetime. For some of us, we have some pretty big chips that need to be chiseled away at, that can take a lot of time. Husbands and wives, Be patient with one another. The Holy Spirit will develop within us gentleness. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit for a reason. When we have an opportunity to talk with our spouse about perhaps something that they said or did that wasn't quite honouring of God, then we do so in gentleness. And we love one another with gentleness and tenderness. The Holy Spirit will develop within us humility. And some of the verses in Scripture that talk about removing the speck from our own eye before we try, or the plank in our own eye before we remove the speck, can be applied to marriage as well. Often with these texts, we don't kind of put them in the marriage context, do we? but we can learn so much. We need to humble ourselves. Sometimes we can be all too critical of our mate or our spouse. We need to humble ourselves and recognise our own faults and weaknesses and be amazed that the person still loves us, just like God does. And the Holy Spirit will develop within us the gift of encouragement. And boy, do marriages need encouragement. If your partner is showing signs of God-given talents and giftings, encourage them to use them, to seek further equipping and developing of those gifts and talents. Encourage them whenever you see them handle a difficult situation in a God-honouring way. Encourage one another in our differences. We also need to have fun together, don't we, Carol? I want to think of someone who can have fun. It's Carol. She knows how to have fun. And do you remember where Jesus' first miracle was? It was at a wedding in Cana. And, uh, and obviously Jesus didn't want the, the bridegroom and bride to be embarrassed that the wine had ran out. But back in this time and in this culture, they really knew how to celebrate You know, And a wedding celebration would last for a week, several days. They knew how to have fun. I think what a wonderful way to start married life with such a wonderful celebration. And what does this say to us? It says that marriage ought to be something that is celebrated often and enjoyed. And so in the midst of the seriousness sometimes of wanting to grow and and help one another become more Christ-like, there has to be room for fun and for happiness and for joy. Maintaining a godly perspective of the purpose of marriage will provide a foundation for a successful marriage relationship. Yes, marriage is a wonderful place to bear and raise children. Yes, God designed marriage for intimacy and companionship, but above all, God designed marriage to reflect his own nature, And that puts marriage into a slightly different perspective, doesn't it? All of a sudden it becomes a lot less about me and my needs and a whole lot more about my spouse and their needs. And reflecting God to them and in turn trusting that they will reflect God to me and then as a couple we reflect the nature of God to the world. For those of us who are married, particularly younger married couples, we would do well to invite an older Christian couple around for dinner and, and quiz them and talk to them about how they've managed to stay married and what things they've done to cultivate a vibrant, healthy, happy marriage. Perhaps for those of us who are elderly and may be existing in our marriage purely out of obligation to our vows... Maybe we need to get around some younger people and learn how to have fun and vitality um, and joy in our marriage. As a church, may we learn to care for those whose relationships have or are crumbling. May we be looking at ways to help make good marriages stronger. And may we all encourage one another in the Lord, whether we are single or married. May God be honoured in all of our lives. Amen. We come to that time now in our service where we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And in the Bible, references are made to